Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the wonderful world of venture capital, primarily focusing on investing and building consumer technology and physical good-related businesses. If you are a founder currently building a consumer-facing business, I also run a private newsletter where I share a bit of deal flow with folks in my network. Feel free to apply to be featured at consumervc.com slash startup. Thank you, Anna Barber, for the intro to today's guest, Michael Barlow, founder and CEO of Furnish. Furnish offers premium furniture rentals that feel like home, delivered and assembled in a week. We discuss how Michael approached validating his idea of furniture rental, figuring out the supply chain, and how they adjusted to shifts in demand for certain products during COVID. Without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I know we've talked about this for a long time, so very pleased to be on. Yeah, and it's been a few months, mostly due to my fault, or actually all due to my fault. So really excited to finally have you on the show. So I know that you originally came from a finance background. What initially attracted you to innovation and entrepreneurship in general? Yeah, I'm definitely not one of the people who like they're born entrepreneurs. I definitely, you know, even when I was finishing college up in, you know, outside New York City, I was not thinking entrepreneurship as a path. You know, I started in investment banking and investment banking I was attracted to because it was outside of the realm of my degree, which was political philosophy, you know, nothing to do with investment banking, nothing to do with like e-commerce furniture either. And it was a steep learning curve that allowed me to problem solve. And so after a number of years of that, I had an opportunity to join startups, the world of startups, move from New York to LA, live in a converted garage and work in a storage closet. You know, for some that didn't sound exciting, but for me, it was a new learning curve and there were a lot of new problems to solve. And that is, I'd say, a theme, Mike, that propelled me from kind of more of a corporate job to a startup small business and led me ultimately to found what is now Furnish. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, I always think it's interesting too how many folks on the banking side of things have liberal arts degrees but end up going into banking. Anyway, so when you did decide furnish, like talk to me about a little bit of the very early days and what was that aha moment that you had and how were you thinking about validating your idea as well? 
Yeah, you know, it actually can be described pretty well as an aha moment, Mike, because or the pain point had been in my head for a number of years. You know, so between, I'd say, finishing college and starting a business, let's say seven, eight years, I moved five times, three different sets of roommates across both New York and LA. I understood that the idea of setting up and moving into and moving around a home that you were actually proud of was a huge challenge. It was a huge problem. It was something that I faced. It was something all of my peers faced faced, whether they live in New York, San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, etc. So this pain point was definitely in my mind. Now, the aha moment was in early 2017 when my fiance, now wife, was actually moving from Chicago to join me in LA. We had met in New York. I'd moved to LA. She moved out to Chicago. And then she was moving to LA. And we just had a conversation around, okay, let's like help plan your move. And the whole idea of furniture kept coming up as a just a continuous pain point in her life, in my life. And the idea of buying, owning, moving, selling, storing, disposing of furniture seemed like a hassle that in 2017, let alone 2020, you shouldn't have to deal with like people were dealing with. There needed to be a service economy solution for making it effortless to set up and create a home. And so that's the literal aha moment. It was, wow, this is an tangible application of a problem that I've thought about for years. We're going to go push forward a business model against this and start validating. But yeah, it's good to remember the story that way and you phrase it well. No, thank you. Thank you. That's fascinating. I mean, it seems like when it comes to furniture on the supply chain side of things, you know, renting, transporting furniture, which of course, that was the pain point that you experienced when you were, you know, moving in with your fiance now wife. But, you know, I'd imagine it's very, very difficult on the supply chain side of things. And that's just me as an outsider. How did you manage to get around this in the early days and just a little bit of like under the hood there? You know, when I talk about this specific topic with folks, Mike, it's if I knew how challenging this was going to be, would I have started the business? <laughs> you know, you look back three years later and you say, okay, we figured out substantially a lot of the aspects of this. But, you know, getting thrown in in early days, it was, okay, we validated demand, which I've spoken about before, a lot of customer surveys, typical customer development efforts. And that was all very exciting and pointed up and to the right and gave, you know, myself, my co-founder, the green light to go start this business. Now, once you go beyond that, you say, okay, how do you, you know, you've pitched a dream to yourself and others. How do you go service a nightmare is one way to say it. And the logistical component of this is highly complex. You know, from an early days perspective, we were, my co-founder Lucas and I were delivering and assembling every order. We had a couple of folks we found on Thumbtack and TaskRabbit that would help us. For the first 30 orders, we did it all ourselves. You know, that really put us in the shoes of our now fulfillment teams and help us understood the ins and outs of kind of from process, procedure, really started thinking about what software we could build to help manage a fleet of inventory like this, as well as, hey, what do you need to know? when you go into a customer's home in order of assembling, arranging, what frequently asked questions do you need to have like on the tip of your tongue ready to speak to? How do you ultimately sell the service while you're in? How do you upsell customers when you're in their home? I mean, we have a very unique position being so close to the customer that we're actually doing what we call not the last mile, but the negative 10 feet. So we're walking 10 feet into people's home. It's a real unique opportunity to super serve the customer. Now in a COVID era, we've had to flip a lot of things and institute a lot of new policies and really think on our toes. But you know that aside, I think where logistics expertise and now a soft, whole software layer that manages that, Mike, has really landed us as a business is I think in a, in a pretty fortuitous position. 
I really actually loved your first comment of, you know, you're very happy that you didn't know how hard it would be or else you probably would never have started the business. When I interviewed Clinton Christopher, who founded Sweetleaf Tea, which was his grandmother's recipe, he said that, you know, he had no retail experience at all. And he's like, if I did have any type of retail experience, I would never have started <laughs> Sweetleaf Tea. So I think it's a kind of similar wavelength there. And, and I think that's also really useful too. You know, Mike, I hear that a lot actually from folks in my entrepreneurial network. And it really goes back to a quote that I really like from one of our investors, Vinod Kosla, who says, change and innovation doesn't happen on an institutional level because they know too much. And I'm paraphrasing Vinod here. You know, you know so much about a specific industry. You know so much about a specific process. It's very hard to put yourself outside that box and go reinvent it. And I've always really valued that approach. And it's obviously, you know, very fortunate to have him as an investor. So we, we share that one. No, love that. Love that. I mean, it's also counterintuitive that not knowing is actually an advantage, which is a very kind of counterintuitive way to think about it. So when I talk to founders, brush on this, but I'll let's go into more detail about this area, because I know that you did talk about market research a little bit. But, you know, when I did speak to founders and also investors as well, we talk about validating ideas and focusing on the demand versus the supply and making sure there is a demand before you go out and you build the product. And, you know, was that part of your approach? How did, I guess, engage or sense if there was a demand for this? Yeah, I when I agree with your approach generally, and you talk to a lot of founders, so you get that businesses that do the best focus on demand versus supply. I think if there's not a demand for the product, you can build a great, a great product. I don't want to talk too much about Quibi, but they might have taken a different approach than others. You know, our approach was definitely talk to as many people as we can. And one, not quit our jobs. My co-founder and I, we weren't at a great startup at the time. We were super early. It was on a huge growth trajectory. It was an, It's another LA-based company called Adam Tickets, a ticketing technology company. And we said, we're going to give this a couple months, this ideation phase, and validate that there might be a demand for this, and then validate that the business model works, validate that we're going to be able to raise capital against this to move as quickly as we want to. And we were really methodical about it. You know, We did 60-hour-long interviews with either friends or second-degree connections talking about their experience furnishing and setting up a new home and transitioning from one city or job to another to really elucidate, hey, is the pain point that we're describing shared amongst other folks in our cohort? You know, what we like to call anecdata, like what's some anecdata that we can pull out of these conversations that might help validate our thesis? The next step was, okay, we have 60 pretty in-depth studies. We got a lot of good information. And how do we blow this out? We can go buy cohorts to talk to on a survey basis from you know, system or programs like Mechanical Turk. And so we went out and we got a thousand data points then and had strong amounts of survey data across folks from nine different cities in the U.S. I kind of ran through a couple of those earlier, anywhere from Atlanta to D.C. to Denver to Chicago to Seattle, New York, San Francisco. And it turns out there was, you know, our indication after a couple months of working on the demand validation was that there was going to be demand for this product. And hey, furniture is definitely more of a pain point than it should be in people's lives. And we really set out to go fix that. And again, you know, at that point, we had to grow grapple with the whole supply chain operation side. And then the notion of building a brand, how do you approach that? What's the right partnerships? How do you, you know, support that from a capital perspective? But I think yeah, that's it. That's exactly the approach we took, Mike. No, I love that. I love that. Thanks so much for explaining it. And I mean, when you think about different markets, I know you started the company in Los Angeles. What made Los Angeles as a test market a great test market? Uh, yeah, no, I'm very long LA generally, very proud resident here in town, as is my co-founder, Lucas. And 
one, we were in LA, which was helpful. Two, LA is a huge market. LA is sort of like a country in itself. Like you're on the west side of LA, you're in Santa Monica Marina. It's a very different world than if you're kind of in maybe more of the younger West Hollywood area or Culver area. And then you go all the way east to Los Feliz and then you can go south and you're in the South Bay. And then you have Orange County, which is adjacent. You have Thousand Oaks, which is adjacent. And it's very much a sprawl of 11 million people that allows you to test and understand different demographics. There's a host of industries that have continued to build up a presence in the greater LA area, which we really like. And then, you know, from a psychographic perspective, Mike, LA, because of the variety of professions and the variety of people here, there's not one dominant industry. Sure, entertainment's big, but so is real estate. Technology is coming up. The services industries have always been big in LA. It's not like a, you know, more of a San Francisco, which is much smaller actually than LA itself. And it has its own psychology. You know, if a product works in San Francisco, it doesn't mean it's going to work in Denver. It doesn't mean it's going to work in Chicago or Seattle. You know, but if a product works in LA, it's more likely to work in the top 15 metros in the country. And that's something that we were really excited about being able to test. And that actually, that decision tree led us to launch Seattle actually as our second market, as opposed to San Francisco as our second market. So you started in LA, you then expanded to Seattle. How do you approach market expansion in terms of which cities you are to expand to, I guess, in the early days? Still the early days. <laughs> Still the early days for us. You approach it very intentionally. Like market expansion is a very considered decision for a business like ours because of the local logistics need. Now, again, I think that's a benefit to us, just like being closer to the customer was, you know, a famous quote from Jeff Bezos. And that's really benefited Amazon over time as they've taken their methodical approach to getting closer and closer to customers. So from that intention is they drive quite a, like quite an equation. I'd say, I think we look at each market, not as its own, you know, distinct country, like I mentioned with LA, but there's a lot of variance from cost of living to customer behavior, to mobility patterns, to demographic trends. And, you know, we're excited about our market expansion efforts here in 2021, which is actually just around the corner now. This year's quite, you know, flown by quite fast. And, you know, we've put a lot of thought into what that ultimately looks like. So excited to move in a couple new directions here in a new year and learn more about other segments of the country. No, that's great. That's great. How do you also think about maybe your growth levers when it comes to maybe approaching organic growth versus, you know, paid acquisition? Great question. Again, no silver bullet here, as I'm sure you I mean. You talk to a lot of consumer companies and digital can get you pretty far, especially if you nail it on anything from the messaging to the imagery to the channels. But it's it, virality is a very tough thing to achieve and something that's still like a, a real opportunity for our business because you look at the instances where people use your product. You know, for us, people use their product when they're going for, you know, a home upgrade or a refresh, mostly apartment dwelling kind of young professionals are our core demographic or people have a roommate moving out or they're themselves are moving. And so how do you find the right touch points where intention is very high, conversion propensity is very high for a consumer? And so that's not necessarily, you know, sometimes that's mailers, sometimes it's more traditional. We actually had a pretty successful billboard campaign running that we were pretty, you know, cheeky about here in LA. And we're going to be trying some new things on the billboard front soon too, which we're excited about. There's a host of channels you really have to try at any given time. And each one of them by themselves is not necessarily a huge lever to pull or a silver bullet, as we could say, but together they provide a variety of touch points that I think, especially on a local level, that can drive the adoption that we're excited to continue to scale up. 
Love that. Love that. I think you're the first entrepreneur I've had to actually has talked about billboards, which is pretty cool and also pretty interesting as well. Well, I, it's a city culture thing, right? I think billboard culture is big here in LA as opposed to other cities where there's you know less driving, so to speak. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. So what were some of your challenges or if you had any challenges during COVID? Yeah, you know, COVID is kind of turned the world and every business with it on, on their heads. I think it's kind of the immediate response was very much operational on our end. And so what we had to do is we had to tweak everything from our processes in the warehouse to fulfillment to customer communication and, hey, do we go into customers' homes still? Like, is this still a thing we're going to do? We actually, for a number of months, made it a default option where we would offer no contact delivery. And so we had a different communication mechanism with customers. We would drop the product at their door and then we'd assemble it, leave it right out Inside their door, they would bring the product in. And, you know, when they'd come back out, they'd have another product. You know, the average order for us is eight to nine items. And so it was maybe less full service, so to speak, but it was a preference that we had to make available at the time. You know, we've now since taken that away as a default, but it's definitely a popular option that we still offer. So the operational change was definitely real. And we had to make that very quickly and think on our toes to enable that. Then there's, you know, the demand component. And for us, we just talked about demand. Mike, but for us, I think we were very fortunate as a business to be in the home category, the home goods, the home goods, furnishings, decor category. You can cut it a number of ways because 2020 has been the year of the homebound consumer. And when you're at home, you're thinking about, does this place give me the comfort, the energy, just the vibe that I want that really describes and me and who and I can relate to. And a lot of customers of ours, a lot of people generally had been spending so much time outside of their homes, whether I be at restaurants, at clubs, at, at concerts, festivals, parties, just traveling generally. And they didn't really have to look themselves in the mirror and ask that question and then say, hey, actually, I need a new mirror. <laughs> you know, so mirrors are actually went off, you know, we had to triple the number of SKUs that we carried for mirrors specifically because we saw a huge rise in demand there. Same thing with work from home item types, anything from table lamps to office chairs, to desks, to bookshelves. And so we've had to tweak our supply chain a little bit to meet demand, but we also <laughs> were really grateful and fortunate for being in the category that we are, especially with so many other businesses really struggling a year like this. Was that a difficult process adjusting like part of your supply chain since more folks in the mirror example that you mentioned and also I'd imagine office desks and maybe chairs are more so in people's houses. Was that kind of a difficult transition? I like to think we're always like, we're always a little bit behind. It's like, oh, if we would have been able to capture more demand, if we, you know, have quicker supply chains or, you know, we could move, you know, 15 days quicker here. I would say it's just something that we learned and moved quickly on, but we could have been quicker to get to. But it's definitely something that emerged and a change in our business that we had to make. Now we offer televisions as well for lease. We offer indoor plants for sale through a partnership we have with Bloomscape because the demand for plants and the customer service inbounds for plants just went through the roof. It's like, oh, do you offer plants to, you know, because I really want that to match my mid-century, you know, bedroom. And it's like, no, we don't offer plants. I'm like, 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 should we offer plants for rent? Should we offer real plants or fake plants? You know, and so really looking at, you know, we talked about demand pulling supply earlier in the conversation, but again, this was very much demand pulling supply. And we've been learning new things from talking to our customers over the course of the whole summer. No, I bet. So I'd love to hear your story a little bit about your approach to raising capital and also why you decided originally to go through, and I know that this is how we got connected through Techstars LA. 
Yeah, so I could happy to chat on this. And I, we'll take them in reverse order. You know, Techstars LA, run by Anna Barber, who's the newest partner at M13 now. Congrats to Anna. We saw that as an opportunity to really increase our network in the LA area, as well as leverage the overall network of entrepreneurs and corporates that Techstars brought to the table. I think my co-founder and I had a pretty good degree of experience generally. You know, we had a small team of five at the time, five of us total. And we just wanted to do everything we could to ensure we would be able to see around corners where other entrepreneurs potentially, you know, learn from their mistakes, learn from their successes and put ourselves in the best position to mirror the successes of kind of the most successful companies that had gone through programs like that. And Techstars has over 10 years now of and a great reputation of experience. And so we look back on that decision actually and say it was a very good one. We just recently added a board member, a woman named Carrie Cooper, an independent board seat. And she's a former CMO of Walmart.com, the former CEO of a great company, a sustainable fashion brand called Rothy's in the Bay. She's on a number of boards, including a couple public companies. And we met her through Techstars, right? We met her and we built that relationship through Techstars. And now she's on our board and very engaged in driving our business forward. And so instances like that over time and from the like, network building perspective have been pretty critical for us. And so again, I think we tie that all back to that Techstars decision back in early. 2018. And I think that you had two questions, but that was one of them. Maybe I went off on a tangent, but... No, I loved it. I love it. And then I guess after Techstars, when you decided to raise around, what was that process like? And in terms of, I know you also recently raised around as well, which congratulations, but what was that process like in terms of how you were able to successfully raise capital? Yeah, raising capital gets harder and harder and harder. But I think with that, you have to really up-level your team, really up-level the everything you know about customer, you know, your customer base generally, both current and potential. Where we were, we did a pre-seed round before Techstars. After Techstars, we did a seed round. We have some great investors involved there. I think we had learned enough about ourselves, added the right key pieces and key people to our team, and demonstrated a decent amount of product market fit. I mean, look, at the end of the day, Mike, we can convincingly tell a story around furniture as a service and the need for a massive category, like $120 billion annual category in the US alone, not transitioning at all to the service economy. You know, there's a huge opportunity to marry those two. And you tell that story and you have enough data to back it up. You know, my story is unique. Other entrepreneurs have their own stories, whether they're consumer businesses or enterprise businesses. But you have to be able to convince folks in the capital community that this need needs to be met. This pain point needs to be solved. And that's really what it came down to, I could, I'd say, in a seed round, right? In a Series A, you just have to have that much stronger of a team, that much stronger of a data set, that much stronger unit economics, consistent growth profile, and still be able to tell that same story in a convincing way. You know, I think so many companies that I've talked to or folks that I've either met through Techstars or otherwise, you know, getting from okay, stage to stage to stage is, you know, sometimes there's pivots involved. Sometimes, you know, you can't quite get there in terms of product market fit and you have to shut it down and try something new, which is totally fine, right? It's just the natural progression of the business. No, totally. Totally. I really appreciate that. I'd say what was maybe the hardest element of your business that you had to convince investors, like hardest, like get them over the line? Totally. The logistics side. Can you handle a business? Do you have the right team and infrastructure and software in place to handle a supply chain oriented company, reverse supply chain, last mile logistics, reverse last mile logistics, kind of all the different layers of it? And do you have enough expertise and do you have enough learnings to be able to solve this issue? And you think about big and bulky goods generally and the costs associated with transport. You have to really narrow those, like you really have to dial that in. And what we had to do as business is bring on 
a team of true experts. You know, we have a COO who's preeminent in the field of physical goods logistics, you know, working for almost a decade at Amazon and last mile fulfillment. And then, you know, being the founder, the early VP of logistics at a company called Zulily, who, you know, she saw from seed staged through IPO and managed a team of a thousand, you know, recruiting and bringing her in. Kristen Smith, our COO, was a year and a half long process. And then building a team around her and really demonstrating the ability to understand the different pain points and have the pattern matching ability and a proven track record to solve that part of the puzzle. And even now we haven't solved it, Mike. I can just say we have a pretty good handle on it. And we've built pretty strong in-house software to help manage that, which is also a compelling kind of service solution feature too. I also wanted to know as well your thoughts around this. So it seems like in the past few years, especially I would say from like the Bay Area folks, it's been optimized for growth and grow, 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 grow. And the last couple of years, it seems like there's been a bit of a change of pace even before COVID where profitability has begun to be optimized. But I would love to just hear your thoughts in terms of your shoes about Furnish and how you think about these two different, obviously important aspects of business, but managing growth versus profitability. The, it's, it's like the, uh, the existential question, Mike. I remember I was looking at uh, DoorDash has recently filed on the IPO side and they, they turned a profit in the second quarter while seeing sizable growth. But in the third quarter, they saw explosive growth, but you know didn't turn a profit. You know, I think they lost like $60 million or something. And so it is like there are two levers here. I think the notion is in 2020 and probably beyond and hopefully beyond, building a startup is going to require a high level of discipline, a high level of discipline on the unit economics side. And investors aren't going to back a growth at all costs company. And they're not going to back a company who may be wildly growing or has the potential to wildly grow if the economics don't ultimately make sense in the long run. You know, The economics don't have to be great today, but there has to be a very clear path to getting you to a place where these are quite compelling and ultimately could lead towards profitability. And again, I'm I'm talking about DoorDash, like DoorDash owns 50% of the, you know, our investor Kosla led the seed round for DoorDash. They saw a path towards profitability in the future then. And DoorDash still is about to IPO at 15 plus billion dollars, still not a profitable company, but they're getting really close. Right. And so that's ultimately what investors are going to underwrite. And I think that's the, you know, that's what entrepreneurs should underwrite as well. Like that's the, if you're going to take a risk at a company, you put your entire professional reputation on the line. You're not going to do that for a company who doesn't necessarily have a business model that can sustain itself. And so I do think, and rightfully so, this is a, you know, this is a, this is a lens which the investment community should view businesses. And I think we go back to my finance background generally, which we started on, you know, looking at just the general forward look. P&Ls is, is how I started my career. And I think that's been an incredibly valuable toolkit. And yeah, I think you know having financial acumen or having that person on a team early on is going to be critical to, to starting a successful company. Yeah, I agree. I think that there certainly you know has been maybe a change in the wind over the past couple of years per se. And I think that that's going to continue to increase where, where sustainability and actually being a sustainable business becomes a lot more important. So what is one thing that you would change when it came to the fundraising process? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think I've never sat on the investor side, although my wife has, which is interesting. So you can kind of coach me through that mindset. You know, that said, it's it's less of something I would change, but more of something that I see as maybe a little silly. And that's the notion of TAM, total addressable market. I know everyone talks about every entrepreneur has a page on this in their deck, but it's, you know, you think about like, oh, I'm chasing the hospitality market. It's a $6 trillion market globally. And it's like, okay, it's a $6 trillion market. If you need a $6 trillion market, top line figure to get invested, 
investors excited. I feel like that's just the wrong way to look at it. If I can go out and say, I have confidence in being able to build a $100 million P&L, I don't care if the market's $400 million total. Like if I can build a $100 million P&L, that is a wildly attractive business for any investor to look at and for any entrepreneur to build. Shoot, some entrepreneurs will be excited about a $50 million top line. But it's really the level of confidence you have in how big you can get a company as opposed to the total addressable market out there. The total addressable market, one, it's going to be a stretch to begin with. Two, it's going to include a lot of international. Three, it's going to include a lot of incumbent players who aren't going to seed market share. And it's just somewhat unrealistic. So when going through our process, I think, you know, we try to stay honest. We're looking at a domestic category, $120 billion, less than 1% of that right now goes to rental. But man, wouldn't it be exciting if 10% of that market went to rental and we were leading a charge there? And not only that, like, what if we're just focused on 20 to 35-year-olds who are making a certain amount of money, who are renting apartments, who are living in urban metros? Is that a market you can go own? And if you own that market, is it still exciting? And I think taking that honest approach has helped us. But from a process perspective, it's not always the first thing that's asked for. So I just think it's, you know, that's how I approach the process versus maybe the other side approach to the process. But we can talk about how my wife and I argue about these things later. No, it's interesting. It actually reminds me of a conversation that I had with uh, Eric Paley and also Mike Duda. I remember Eric was like, the thing that us investors get notoriously wrong, like the VCs get notoriously wrong, is market sizing. And he gave the example of Fitbit. He was like, when Fitbit began, what was the wearables market back then? It was not really much of anything, you know, and Fitbit's done quite well. Same with Mike Duda. He was describing how when he invested in Peloton, he was like, how do I do like a market size for Peloton? It's either like the fitness market, but it's home. So anyway, it is interesting how some investors that I have on the show really do think about TAM and then others are pretty honest and it's really hard to calculate it and really hard to think about it. So... Yeah, it's super interesting concept too. And we've, you know, seen a lot of approaches and we've thought through a lot of approaches and, you know, talked to a lot of other entrepreneurs who have their own approaches. And yeah, there's no, again, no silver bullet, but it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting part of any fundraising process. Totally, totally. So what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Very good question, Mike. I think I'm, I, I tend to read probably more historical fiction. You know, a lot of folks that are entrepreneurs will, or that I know love to read kind of business-focused books, scaling books. And I, I enjoy those too, but I more like take a historical lens. I think that's where I find a lot of energy. I'll just give you one book maybe. But one book that I really like is actually called Against the Gods by a guy named Peter Bernstein. I don't... Uh, have you heard of the book, by the way? Yes, I have. I have. Yeah. You have? Yeah. Awesome. It's a book I really like. It's in many ways like a math or a history of math textbook. But the notion is, is that kind of before 500 years ago and after 500 years ago, like roughly Renaissance timeframe, you know, there was a notion that the gods determined fate and the gods determined what would happen in the future. And so why like math stopped at, I'd say a lot from equation perspective, right up until it was able to estimate probability or think about the risk of future events happening. So the concept of insurance was just not a thing. The concept of futures trading was just not a thing. You know, but once mankind got over the fact that, oh, the gods don't predict everything, you know, they were able to go, to the name of the book, against the gods, they were able to explore so many new parts of the world and so open up kind of the doors of what mathematics is today and what probability theory is today. And that book, I remember reading it right out of college when I was starting my career at JP Morgan. It just blew my mind. Um, I had taken a number of math courses and statistics and probability. And I was diving deeper into that in a financial career. And I think I was definitely inspired by that book. And I also, I also just learned so much. It was definitely one of those books that puts you on a learning curve that I could relate to at the time. 
I love that. That sounds really fascinating. I think it also goes back a little bit, you know, in thinking about maybe a bit more broadly as well of all the things that you can control, whether that's, you know, a CEO or founder, but, you know, also just in life in general, just everything that you can actually have control over that is not someone else. In this example, it would be a God, but, you know, in that way. Totally. It's actually a great, that's a great comment, Mike. And I think it's also one thing that you really got to keep in mind in my shoes or your shoes, right? You're starting your own business right now too. It's, Hey, I don't have control over what 2020 is going to throw at me. Like what an election is going to throw at me, what a pandemic is going to throw at me. Like, how do I understand the levers that I can control and use those to my, to my own ability? But yeah, that's an application I haven't quite thought of. So. So was there like an early mistake that you made while building Furnish that maybe changed the way how you thought about business strategy or business in general? It's also a good question. You know, I think I would go back to the logistics component on kind of kicking myself for not understanding about what that's going to ultimately entail over time, albeit again, we've made great strides. I think one opportunity for us continually from the beginning and on is that, you know, how do you convince customers to part with money? right? It's, you really have to have a compelling value proposition and then be able to articulate that very clearly. We had such positive feedback going into building our first site that when we launched it and started marketing it, we were just a little like shocked that not everyone was converting that thought <laughs> at the time. I would say that, you know, we've continued to hone and learn and talk to customers and kind of a lot of the things we talked about already, it's less of a single individual mistake. It's just a set of assumptions that became more and more elucidated over time that we were making that weren't necessarily true and or weren't necessarily articulated the right way. So maybe a roundabout way to answer your question, but sales are hard. <laughs> That's really helpful. I think it's going back as well to your original component in that you didn't come from this industry to begin with. And that's one of the positives being in it, not knowing how logistical challenges, how challenging those would be. And as well, I mean, I agree with you and I really liked how you phrased it in thinking about why customers part with money and how to get them to part with money in terms of you have to have a very compelling business or value proposition rather in order to see that. That's great. I would say as a final question, what's one piece of advice that you have to current founders just one only allowed to give one you can live several well i you know hope, hopefully this podcast is helpful to your audience but the one thing i'd, I'd kind of say is that um something that lucas and i have been pretty intentional about and that lucas is you know my co-founders takes a very academic approach to you know to many things and i and i look up and value that in a meaningful way when it comes to organization building whether it be titling or responsibility delegation and division of responsibility between every organization and division of responsibility between, you know, myself and my co-founder, right? And then our COO and then our level of directors. There's a level of intentionality that really has to go in to that in order to make it successful, right? You know, the last position any CEO founder should really be in is bringing in a friend that they then overtitled and gave too much responsibility for that they then have to let go when a business sees a level of success. I think that's something that I know a lot of folks who have been in that position and it's just a bad one to be in. Generally, like being a founder is stressful enough. So how can you find ways to alleviate that, like those pressure points before they ultimately kick in? And we got some great advice early on from some of our, you know, we have, we're very fortunate to have some incredibly smart angel investors, individual investors, whether it be Scott Cook, who founded Intuit, Jeff Wilkie, the CEO of Consumer at Amazon, Spencer Raskoff, co-founder of Zillow and .LA, they would echo a lot of the same sentiment you know, that I'm passing along here. So that level of intentionality around organization building is critical. 
I really appreciate sharing that. I think that you're the first entrepreneur that has talked about organization building and in terms of how to think about titles and responsibility. So that's incredibly helpful to me as this is the first time I've heard it through this podcast. And I hope it's also helpful to listeners as well that are actually building businesses and not me. Michael, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. It's definitely been a lot of fun. Long time in coming. And again, appreciate everything you're doing for the community. And there you have it. It was so fun chatting with Michael. Michael, thanks again for your time. If you're in the market for furniture, I highly recommend checking out Furnish.com. I also highly recommend following Michael on Twitter at Barlow. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.